Okay, let's bow in prayer. Now, our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in Christ Jesus that we were crucified with him, buried with him, and raised with him, and that he not only dealt with the penalty of sin, but its very power. We're grateful that when you save us, you give us the Spirit as an earnest and also as our helper, as the one who comes alongside, who encourages us, who fills us and empowers us and teaches us how to walk with the Lord Jesus. And we pray tonight that his ministry of teaching would be real in our lives, that we might walk more closely with the Lord Jesus in every respect. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. All right, if you are here for the first time, uh, this is section seven of a course on basic discipleship. This is what we teach every Sunday morning in the discovery class, but we are giving full now, full-blown structured notes. Where have we been so far? The topic is the Christian in the Bible. We first began by looking at the power of God's word, and we saw the power of God's word first in respect to justification. No one has ever been saved apart from a word from God whether he gave it through a revelation or a vision or a dream. And this day, the way he gives it is through his written word. But the word is like seed. You're born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. We also saw that the Christian is not only saved through the word of God, we are sanctified through the word of God. We're set apart, and then there is that present aspect of sanctification. So in the truest sense, we've been sanctified. We have been set apart. First Thessalonians 5 speaks of the time when body and soul and spirit will be sanctified, future, when we are made like Christ in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But right now, we're in that in-between stage where God is shaping us in the image of Christ. And just as there are two parents in the new birth, there are two parents, so to speak, in this process of spiritual growth. We're born again by the Spirit, but the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God that He uses to bring that conversion, and likewise in spiritual growth. And so we're exhorted to put away certain evil things, and like newborn babes, we're to long for the pure milk of the Word. John Bunyan, the great pastor who lived 1628 to 1688, said this, I've written it in the front of every Bible I have, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And it is so true. So we have decisions that we must make. And if our heart is clouded and filled with sin, then the process of growth is significantly hindered. And so James spoke about putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word which is able to save your souls. We saw that was the present tense aspect of salvation. Not speaking of justification or glorification there, but the word of God saving your soul, sanctifying you, changing you even today. We saw that God's word is profitable in every respect. And for it to be profitable, it has to be clear. And so as in our course on bibliology, we dealt again with the doctrine of perpiscuity. It's a very important term that was used by the reformers like inspiration and other words, inerrancy, infallibility, Purposeuity speaks to the fact that the scripture can be understood, that you do not need an organization, namely the magisterium and the day of the reformers, uh, but God gave his words so that you can understand it, so you can read it. Doesn't mean that he doesn't raise up teachers in the church, doesn't mean that every passage is easy to understand, but nonetheless, as we read it and study it, it will equip us for every good work. And then in our last session, we began with the priority the Christian should place on the Word of God. We saw that we're to be diligent to learn God's Word. Be diligent or study. It's a, a double-sided word in the Greek New Testament. It's a study, but not just any kind of a study, a diligent study. And so we're to be diligent to show ourselves approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed. And we saw that there are some illustrations that Paul is using right out of first century Koine Greek, like a farmer who plows a straight furrow or someone cutting a, a road through the woods or an arrow that is trying to hit its target. And if we are sloppy in our interpretation, we'll misapply the word of God and will swerve away from the truth. And so while every believer is equally beloved of God, not every believer is approved of God. You can be unconditionally loved by God, but if 
largely due to laziness or distractions or sometimes just sin that is not dealt with in the life. A Christian is not approved by the Lord in terms of his usability. And then we saw lastly last time that the Christian must minister the Word of God from a spirit-filled life. And so we did a little review and recap as we do with each of these lessons in the discovery class, or we call it basic discipleship, if you're looking for it online at searchthescriptures.org, and there are four primary uh, exhortations in the New Testament given to the believer that help us to understand our relationship to the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Spirit when we do those things that displease the Lord. It deals in the negative realm. And the solution, 1 John 1, 9, is to confess our sins. We're to have no unconfessed sin in the heart. Then we're told, literally, quench not the Spirit. We quench the Spirit when we don't do those things positively that God has commanded us to do. And the solution is to yield every area of our life to God, to be available to do anything He wants us to do, go anywhere He wants us to go, say anything He wants us to say, give anything He wants us to give. We're His slave. We're totally yielded in the positive realm. And so some Christians are not filled with the Spirit because why they say, well, I'm not doing these negative things over here, neither are they doing the positive commands of Scripture. And they're throwing a fire. Uh, They're throwing water on a fire, on the Spirit's fire in their life. So grieve not, quench not, walk by the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5. And it speaks of dependence. Paul will say to the Colossians, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive him? By grace through faith, not of works. Even so, you walk in him. You came to Christ in a sense of bankruptcy. You admitted there was nothing you could do. And so, uh, as a believer, as you walk with the Lord, you come in that same sense of bankruptcy. We are totally dependent moment by moment on him. All right, that's the first 40 pages, all right? We still have about 20 or more to go before we're done. So we're on C tonight. The Christian must sow to the Spirit. Grieve not, quench not, walk by. The fourth command in the New Testament is to sow to the Spirit. The Christian must sow to the Spirit by meditating on Scripture. So that's where we're at. Um, Follow along. There's some blanks to fill in if you're here for the first time simply because people take this uh, class for credit and they have to demonstrate they've heard all the messages that go with it. But two, it's a good learning tool. Uh, It's hard for your mind to drift and for you to go into nether netherland uh, if you have some blanks to fill in. All right, number one, as expected, since the Spirit uses His Word both in our conversion and in our growth, it only follows that He would minister His Word effectively from a life that is both filled with himself and the Bible that he inspired. So that becomes the key for God to mediate and minister and serve the Word of God from your life into someone else's. You must be filled with him and you must be filled with his Word, both. To sow to the Spirit involves saturating our minds in the Bible, which is often referred to or described as Scripture meditation. While it is true that you cannot find the phrase scripture meditation or Christian meditation anywhere in scripture, anywhere in the Bible, the truth is clearly taught. Uh, In fact, the words uh, meditate or the plural, meditates, um, the word meditation are found 23 times in the Old Testament in relation to thinking very seriously about what we know of God what we know of God concerning his word or his person or his ways. And we'll see when we come to the New Testament, there are parallels. It doesn't use the word meditate or meditation. It uses different words to describe the same process. So, for instance, of course, all Scripture is inspired. That includes the Old Testament. That includes Obadiah and Nahum and Hosea and Isaiah. Every book is God-breathed and it's profitable for us. So, for instance, in Joshua 1.8, we read, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will achieve success. Joshua 1.8. Or Psalm 1. Our children learn a number of psalms when they are in children's choirs. And one of the psalms they learn is Psalm 1. Blessed 
or you could use the old English and say blessed, uh, but it is blessed in modern English. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his, on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 63, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you. So we're not just meditating on God's law, God's word, we're meditating on him. Of course, his word and everything that it says is a reflection of him. Someone said to me once, doctrine is boring. I said, you're saying God is boring because doctrine reflects who God is, what he is like. When I remember you in my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Or Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all the Bible is Psalm 119, and the whole focus is on the Word of God. The shortest chapter in the whole Bible is Psalm 117, and the middle chapter, at least it works this way out in our English Bible, is Psalm 118. All right, there's a little trivia for you. Uh, you can ask your kids, what's the longest, what's the shortest, what's the middle chapter? There it is, 117, 118, 119. I'll meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Uh, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wonders. Again, we're thinking here on the works of God, not just his person, but his works and his ways. Um, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your accomplishments. I reflect on the work of your hands, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Now, the Hebrew verb, which is translated meditate, is found in passages like Joshua 1.8 or Psalm 1.2, or some of the verses I just quoted is the Hebrew word hagah. And it literally means to ponder, and it can be used in other contexts, but to ponder, to imagine, to talk, to mourn, to deliberate, to muse, to study, to ruminate, to mutter. So there's this careful thought process that is going on when you're truly meditating on Scripture. Number six, the next page. The word meditation in our day has mixed connotations like an Eastern meditation that has as its goal to empty the mind. Repeating a mantra and attempting to empty one's mind of all thought is dangerous. And so this is sometimes reflected in transcendental meditation, yoga, and other Eastern disciplines because an empty mind is an invitation to deception. And I would say also an untaught mind is an invitation to deception. That's why 45 times in the New Testament, we're exhorted to learn sound doctrine because without it, we lack potential discernment. Biblical meditation carries the exact opposite meaning as emptying your mind, for its goal is to fill your mind with the Word of God as you carefully think about words and thoughts and truths concerning their meaning and application. So you're carefully thinking about these things. As just noted, to meditate in the original Hebrew language means to mutter, to ruminate, which can bring two vivid images to mind. One is of a person who's walking around muttering under his breath. I was... Um, in a large city recently, and I was amazed at how many homeless people they were, and so many who were just talking to themselves. It was very sad, very sad what the drug problem is doing in our nation, and it's growing exponentially. But it can be used of someone muttering under his breath as if he cannot stop obsessing over a thought. Even so, when we meditate on Scripture, we are turning its truth over and over in our thinking. We're just letting it really penetrate our mind and our thought as we ponder it, as we think about it. The second image is of a cow chewing its cud. For as a cow swallows her food fast and then stores it in one of her stomachs until, later, until a later time when she brings this food or cud back to her mouth to chew it over again. 
So that's what cows do. They have three stomachs. I'm not an expert on cows, but I've studied their uh, makeup a little bit, and they put the alfalfa in one and the barley in another and the oats in a third and mix it all together, and you get a beautiful glass of milk on the end, you know. <laughs> but they, they, they swallow it, and then they vomit it back up, and they swallow it, and it goes through this process. It's called rumination. Likewise, when we sow to the Spirit, that's a command we studied at the end of the last lesson from Galatians 6, sow to the Spirit, not to the flesh. Likewise, when we sow to the Spirit by meditating on Scripture, God's Word is chewed, swallowed, regurgitated, chewed again, and then swallowed until it is thoroughly absor absorbed in our thoughts. So interesting, when you study the etymology of the Hebrew word Hagah for meditation, and you see how it comes into English through Greek, through Latin, ultimately, rumination. It describes this process of turning something over and over and over again. So biblical meditation is the practice of muttering and ruminating on Scripture, such that God's Word is internalized in our hearts. It's internalized in our hearts. When we go through this process, we really begin to think our thoughts after God's thoughts, discovering God's truth and owning it for ourselves. That's really what we want to do. We want these truths to be ours. You know, you look for that on the most basic level when you uh, discern as a parent or as a pastor, has my child crossed the line yet where they've gone from just knowing about Christ and knowing him personally? And you're looking to see if they have owned the gospel yet. You're looking for clues to that where they're not just spitting back things you've told them, though it's important to tell them, but it's penetrated the, the heart. For with the heart man believes under righteousness. When we go through this process, we really begin to think our thoughts after God's thoughts. 15, while there is immense value in learning a broad overview of Scripture by reading it through each year, meditating balances this by infusing the truth of Scripture into our core, bringing both blessing and freedom. That's what we want to do. You know, you can read through the Bible in a year and not really be changed. Nothing wrong with it. I read through the Bible every year, or I listen to it every year. I do one or the other, accommodation, usually of both. But that is no guarantee in and of itself that you're going to be changed through Scripture. You want to bring it into your heart, into your core being. Psalm 1-3 captures the importance of meditating on the law of God. David records, he will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. In describing the new life and the freedom that a heartfelt realization of knowing God's word brings, Jesus said, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, John 8, 32. And that's why he prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer. Remember, they leave the upper room, they stop in one place, they do the high priestly prayer, they go further to Gethsemane, which is another prayer altogether. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's what he prayed. He prayed it not just for the disciples, as we discovered a few weeks back. He prayed it for us because he prayed for those who would believe through them, and that would include you and I. James 1, to 25 also captures both the blessing and the freedom that comes from having a deep desire to learn, understand, and apply God's word. So you see these themes running all the way through Scripture. James 1 would certainly be a, a central passage in that realm. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude or deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. So he's using this illustration of a hearer and not a, a doer of a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. If we read the Bible or hear the word without truly internalizing what it means and how it applies to us personally, then we are not meditating on Scripture nor obeying the command to sow to the Spirit. When we are hearers and not doers, we are not only disobedient to the command to sow to the Spirit, we also delude 
or some translations say, I think the NAS 2020 says, deceive. We deceive or we delude ourselves. If we only hear God's word by coming to church or reading the Bible without applying it, then we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we are spiritual. And so some grow old without growing up. You can meet someone who's 70 years old and been saved for 50 years. And they're still a baby in Christ. And you can meet some who are 12 years old and been saved for six years, and they can be more spiritually mature. You can grow old without growing up. Hearing the word without responding is nothing but spiritual regression. And we touched on this last time, if you remember, from the writer of the Hebrews in the fifth chapter. Uh, someone called me today from Atlanta about Hebrews chapter 6. And, uh, and I said, well, the key is Hebrews 5, because the context is about growing and maturing. He's not talking, obviously, about losing your salvation, because the writer of the Hebrews affirms the eternal security of the believer in other places in the book. Nor is he describing someone who has just come close to salvation and hasn't crossed the line. He's describing a believer who hasn't moved on. And they can reach a point when God will lay them aside. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. An infant does not come to need milk because he's born with that need. And so this is why it's so important. And we do everything we can. You can't put a gun to someone's head, but when they're new to the faith, we say you should really go to the discovery class. You really need to go there. Make it happen. Do whatever you can because it's going to change your life. And when they're new to the faith, they have that newborn hunger. The hardest people sometimes to deal with are people who have been saved for 20 years, but they didn't get discipled. They become crusty, old, complaining, crotchety Christians. <laughs> and they're hard to deal with. They're hard to work with. So an infant does not come to need milk because he's born with the need. The only one who comes to need milk is someone who has gone back into childhood. And that's what Hebrews is dealing with, regression. By a failure to truly hear and apply what he knows. To hear and to apply what he knows. Same principle that we just read in James. He will say here, but solid food is for the mature. And by mature, he uses this word teleos. He doesn't mean someone who's arrived. None of us have arrived. If you've arrived, you've actually are degressing <laughs> because you've deceived yourself. We don't arrive until we're glorified. So he's describing those, someone who has a grown-up and a habitually growing relationship. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, there it is, we're talking about application, have trained their senses to discern, to dissect, to disseminate between good and evil. So some Christians lack discernment because they've been exposed to truth that they haven't applied. And that's not a good place to be. Because if you have a, a dad, especially, who's supposed to be the shepherd of his home, and he's supposed to be engaged in discipling his children, and he has no discernment, he's going to allow things in his home that should never end, it, end and that will either keep his children out of the kingdom, or he will keep his children from ever growing. Now, we, we have that wisdom in the physical realm. I remember being in an airport in, uh, I don't remember what city it is now, but we're in an airport and the baby was crawling around Jeremy on the rug. I think we we're in Texas, the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and he went to put this dead roach in his mouth, you know, and it was almost there. Don't put that in your mouth. No, that's not good. Yeah, we'll put other things into our hearts. And literally into our mouths, that should never go there. Remember, in this context, James is not contrasting, James 1, he's not contrasting a believer with an unbeliever. Rather, he is contrasting a maturing, growing believer with an immature believer who simply hears the word without obeying it. 
The word translated delude or deceive, paralogizomai is the word in the Greek New Testament. It's a, it's a verb that has the idea of cheating or defrauding yourself. That is, you're cheating yourself out of growth and maturity and a closer walk with Christ. So when we don't apply what we know, we're the ones who are ripped off. You obey what you know, you grow. When you don't, you digress. And you can easily deceive yourself into thinking you're something that you're really not because you've taken in knowledge without actually applying it. The Apostle James likens such a person to a man who looks in a mirror and who immediately forgets what he looks like. Immediately forgets what he looks like. Most of you know, and if you were here for my series in James a year or so ago, in Greek there are two different words for man. There's the word anthropos, giving us our word anthropology. And by the way, the secularists stole this word from the realm of theology. It was coined initially in the realm of theology. Anthropology was a theological study of what God says about man. And in the Institute of Biblical Studies, we have a course on anthropology. And so it gives us our word anthropology, which is used to speak of mankind. And so anthropos is the general word to describe people. And so sometimes it's translated as people. And in the newer translations, even in the NASB 2020, uh, sometimes they'll take the word, the generic word man, and they'll translate it people. Now, you didn't have to do that 20 years ago, but people are so, one, ignorant of the English language, because they, I mean, it's sad. I mean, kids are graduating from high school, and they don't know basic English grammar. And add to that, you have, and they're not trying to do this, uh, you have people who are offended over masculine terms. The NES never does that. But sometimes when it's a generic word that's used, like anthropos, they'll translate it simply as people, and that's a good translation. This word is a generic word, including both men and women, whereas the other Greek word for man, which is anir, referring specifically to someone of the male sex and not a woman. Here, the Spirit-inspired James not to use the generic word for man, anthropos, but the gender-specific word for man because someone of the male gender is a better illustration based on the way men tend to look in a mirror. A man tends to glance into a mirror, whereas a woman tends to gaze into a mirror, studying her appearance and giving it more attention. And we're glad they do. And we don't like girly men. I mean, we don't dislike them, but, you know, we live in a day of girly men. But historically, I should say, women tend to gaze more than men do. I'm not saying that our appearance should be crummy. My wife says, you got shaving cream in your ear. I do that more times than it's worth counting. We should look. We want to be presentable. But he is just describing a basic difference between men and women because there are differences. Uh, I was dealing recently with a newly married guy and I said, what's your biggest challenge? He said, she takes so much time. He said, just changed my life. It used to be I could get out the door in three minutes and now it's a big deal. And I said, welcome to married life. (laughs) But we like that difference. We like our women to be presentable, right? Say amen, somebody. All right, good. Um, Number 32, right? Some Christians may study the word of God in the way a man looks into a mirror, that they only glance, missing the detail and the meaning of how it applies to them, such that James tells us, using this illustration specifically of the male gender, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. James is teaching us that because sometimes both men and women can just glance at the word, so men can, women can do this as well, and not really see, much less remember what God wants them to see and to remember, and so they are not sowing to the Spirit. They're not obeying the command, sow to the Spirit. 
because of the manner in which they approach Scripture. However, if we look long and deeply enough, we will see truths that are absolutely unforgettable, such that our character can be changed and long-rooted habits broken, and the truth will set you free. I don't know if we'll finish it tonight, but this is a major aspect of sowing to the Spirit. If you're confessing the same anger and lust, and if you're blowing your cork today like you were 25 years ago, there's a problem. You're not growing. Oh, I just confess it and repent of it. Well, you should, but that's not the whole picture. There's much more to it. God wants to change character. If you only hear the word without giving careful focus, then before long you will have immediately forgotten what kind of person you are and the change or sanctification that God wants to bring is only stunted. Only stunted. But when I take a good hard stare into the mirror of Scripture, then I am able to get an accurate picture of my soul. And I will not forget what kind of person that I am as I meditate on the Word. When we sow to the Spirit in this way, we can then claim James 1.25. James 1.25, next page. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Notice that James characterizes the word as law. We saw that in Psalm 1, Joshua 1, 8, and a number of other places, right? For he is reminding us that it is the authoritative body of truth to be heard and obeyed. Notice, too, that he characterizes the word as perfect because it's complete, it's sufficient, it's all you need because it is the revelation of God. When I went into the ministry in 1978, the biggest dispute was the reliability of Scripture. What was on the chopping block was inerrancy, infallibility, et cetera, et cetera. What is on the chopping block today is the sufficiency of Scripture. And somehow the church has been convinced it's not sufficient, that we need to do other things. When the church gathers, and we need psychology and anagrams and all these psychological tests that are nothing but sheer unmitigated nonsense. We are not seeing the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's why the church is in the shape that it's in. God's in control. He's sovereign. And one of these days, he's going to have had enough with the Gentile church, and he's going to replace it with the Jewish evangelists around the world. I can't wait. Um, notice, too, where are we? On 40? 41, James also refers to the perfect law as the law of liberty because we discover that it's liberating when we obey. In the words of Romans 12, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove. In the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses this word to describe when uh, David said to Saul, I haven't tested this armor. I haven't proved it. I don't know for certain that it's going to work for me. Well, that's the word that's used here, that you may prove what the will of God tests, no experience, namely this will which is good and acceptable and perfect. Lost people think, think the Bible curbs their freedom and cramps their style, not knowing that real liberty is not just doing anything we want, but real freedom is doing that which we ought to do. That's the nature of freedom. You'll say, I'm, I just want to be free. And you are free to make decisions that you make. We all are, but we're not free to escape the consequences of, that decision, of those decisions. And real freedom is not being enslaved to sin. It's being free to do that which God has called us 
to do and to be. James is teaching us that when you look intently into the Bible and then you obey, then and only then will you find true liberty as God designed, and in so doing, you are really blessed. Same theme, right, that we looked at and we'll see again in Psalm 1. You are truly blessed, a truly fulfilled individual. Once again, to state the same truth in the words of King David, and what a perfect psalm to open the five books of the Psalter with. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. James and Peter follow the same pattern of Psalm 1. When they command us, and we studied this last week and the week before, to get rid of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, that's James 1.21, along with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Same pattern as outlined in Psalm 1. Whether the influences on us come from thoughts within or from without, by the company we choose to keep, the counsel is the same and that there must be a weeding out of sin before there can be a seeding in of truth. So, while we are called to reach a lost world, Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, right? And to be a friend of sinners, that's how they describe Jesus, a friend of sinners and tax gatherers. The scripture also exhorts us to guard ourselves from the influence of of the world system and its people. Called to guard ourselves from the influences of the world system. And balance is key. And when we're out of balance, we can easily fall into error. So like, for instance, in Romans 16, 19, Paul tells the church at Rome in the final chapter, for the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. We would do well to heed that advice. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, in both of those passages, contextually, the bad company, the evil versus the good, is sound doctrine versus bad doctrine. But if you think about it, just practically, when you're walking with people who represent not what God stands for, they are representing in their lifestyle bad doctrine versus good doctrine. But there's much to be said for the original context because when you put it back in the original context, you want to make sure that you're not in a compromised church or a denomination. Someone called on the Bible line yesterday about the Emmaus Road Walk, and I said, well, fundamentally, I would run a thousand miles away from it because it comes out of a Roman Catholic movement, and it's packaged under a number of different titles, and though there may be some legitimate Emmaus Road weekend experience that's led by a born-again Christian, fundamentally, it's been birthed in the United Methodist Church that was one of the earliest Protestant denominations to deny biblical infallibility. And when they talk about us being the hands and feet of Jesus, what they mean is the social gospel, being saved by those things. They don't mean what the New Testament means when we're described as the body of Christ. And not to mention, they're so anti-Israel, the Palestine Liberation Movement gave them a five-star review because of their willingness to boycott BDS, that whole movement, which is against the Jewish people. Anyway, save your mail. (laughs) Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and lawlessness share together? Or what does light have in common with darkness? Or what harmony does Christ have with Belial? Belial was a common first century name for Satan. They took the Hebrew word for worthlessness and the pagan god Baal and put it together and created this word Belial. They're referring to the devil. 
What does Christ have in common with the devil? Nothing. Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? In the truest sense, nothing. We're members of two radically different families. We're in one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as I said, and he strings these Old Testament passages together. I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's Leviticus. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Separate. That's from Isaiah 52. Interestingly, if you know Isaiah 52, it's a classic passage from the prophet exhorting the people who are going to be in Babylon, don't get sucked up into their idolatry. But it's a good example that all Scripture is profitable, right? Because he's taking that principle and he's applying it to the Corinthians. And Paul underscores that idolatry is anything that you love, serve, and worship more than God. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So I'll dwell among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. That's the new covenant, right? That's Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Even so, in Psalm 1, God makes a division between the wicked, verse 4, and the righteous, verse 5, between the saved and the lost. For God does not divide men as we do, you know, rich, poor, highly educated, uneducated, on and on, because he does not see as man sees. Right, 1 Corinthians 16, the choosing of a king. And so we are not to walk in the counsel of the wicked because ungodly philosophies will poison your mind as wicked counsel always leads to sinful living. It may be wicked doctrine. The secret church has bad doctrine. That's why it's now covered over in sexual immorality. The things they have taught are, have led to the natural result of a lifestyle. Because ungodly philosophies will poison the mind, lead, and it leads to sinful living, resulting in our standing in the path of sinners. Satan, he's called the God of this world in the sense that, if you remember Matthew 4, Luke 4, the temptation, he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world because what Adam lost, Satan gained. So temporarily, he is the God of this world, small g. He knows that if he can get you to think incorrectly, since our thinking influences our behavior, he will have won in getting you to live out some sinful act. Why? Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We find in Psalm 1 an evolution to sinful behavior. You know, I don't believe in biological evolution. I'm not using the word in that context. Now, my dad, when I was a child, he wrote to this company to, um, I don't know how much he paid, but I ended up with the book after he passed, and it was on the Brogy history. And he read it to us one night at the kitchen table. He had eight children, and he would read different things to us. And he said, well, kids, I, we got some horse thieves in our family back in Italy. According to this book, some of them were hung. So I know some of my relatives, I don't know if they make this stuff up to sell it to people or just what, but some of my relatives wore a rope around their neck, but none of them hung by a tail because we're created in the image and likeness of God, and evolution is the premier lie, and I hope uh, you picked up on our speaker, Dave Penny. They have a premier conference that if you have homeschoolers, people in Christian schools, kids in public school, they should come to this conference that we'll be offering next April. It's just unbelievable. You'll love it. Um, so in Psalm 1, we find an evolution to sinful behavior because the counsel of the wicked will put you in the path of sinners. This is a digression. And the sinful lifestyle of the lost will land you in the seat of scoffers who are proud of their sin. That's Romans 1, right? The end of the chapter. They not only know this is a violation of the ordinance of God, Paul will say they give hearty approval 
to those who do such things. They, they move from just participating in the sin to becoming evangelists for sin. And that's what the so-called pride movement has done in our nation. In a downward spiral, the lost move from walking or entertaining sin to standing or lingering in sin to scoffing, where one is defending his sin, a progression from being ungodly to becoming anti-godly. And that's sadly where our culture seems to be more and more today. Since this happens to the lost, the righteous are to guard against certain teachings and certain people and certain companions like a deadly disease. Now, again, I already preface that Jesus is a friend of sinners. We have been called to the Lord to reach the lost. In some Christian families, the biggest mistake they make is they so isolate their children from the lost that they don't try to reach them. And then you don't raise spirit-filled children. If your children don't have a, a passion to reach lost people, then they're quenching the spirit. If they've met the Lord, they're quenching the spirit and they're just following your example. So there's this balance between being engaged and being a friend of sinners, but not being influenced by them, or the old catchphrase not found in the Bible, but people quote it like it is, in the world, but not of the world. And so Psalm 1-2 has within it a contrast, but, but is the first word in verse 2, because the godly person has his delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night as he shuns the counsel of the ungodly for the word of God. However, if you clog up your spiritual arteries with filth, then your delight will not be in Scripture, nor will you meditate on it. As we have noted, like a cow that loads up on grass in the morning so she can chew on it all day long, we too should ruminate on God's Word, turning it over and over. Clearly, meditation as revealed in the Bible has nothing to do with any practices that have foundationally the emptying of one's mind. Transcendental meditation, centering prayer, contemplating prayer, these are, these are all wicked things. People call me on the Bible line and ask me about contemplative prayer and centering prayer because they've got this over on Hilton Head and all these Bible studies. It's evil. But the church lacks discernment today. They don't know who's on first. Again, God's voice is heard in his word and not in some extra biblical revelation. And so our goal is not to empty our minds, but to fill our minds. When you've got these Christians who are saying, God spoke to me almost like in the first person, direct revelation, email, a text message from heaven. Don't listen to them. And if you're one of those persons, you need to repent of that. God can lead you. God can guide you from his word. And I get that, but be careful with your wording. Nobody gets direct emails and text messages like Beth Moore claims to have in the whole Pentecostal charismatic movement. That's what every cult is built on. The precepts, or let's see, 59, right? When David prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, contextually his thoughts are rooted in the precepts and the commandment of God. The precepts of the Lord, you notice it's all caps there, yod, hey, vav, hey, right? Y-H-W-H, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. True Christian meditation is an active process. As we study God's word, praying and asking our teacher, the Holy Spirit, to give us the understanding we need. And he's our teacher, right? 1 John 2, 27 I'm going to read it again. I read it a couple, three weeks ago, but it simply says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's described here as an anointing abiding in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, 
And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, John is not discounting the need for teachers. He's teaching that you don't need a teacher. He's just underscoring that your ultimate teacher is the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one who makes it real to you. I can, I can unfold the word of God, but unless the spirit of God illuminates, to your, illuminates it to your mind, it doesn't mean much. I can impart the truth through the preaching of the word, but only the spirit of God can illuminate that truth. Oh, I see. Nowhere in scripture are Christians encouraged to seek any kind of meditation beyond the Bible, which is literally God-breathed. That's what the word inspired is. Theos neustos, God-breathed. When we put into practice the truth that God has revealed, God in turn reveals more of himself when we grow closer to him. When it becomes our practice to read, study, and internalize God's word, the process is not a burden, but it is a blessing. It's not something the believer has to do. It's something we get to do. If you're bored with Bible study, there's a problem in the heart. Something has short-circuited your love for God's word. You're either grieving or quenching or you're not depending on the spirit. And so you don't want to sow to the spirit. When the study of Scripture becomes our delight, right? He delights in the law of the Lord. Then we have moved forward in our walk with the Lord from simply reading the Bible to actually meditating on the Bible. We are sowing to the Spirit. This is what allows us to experience the truth of 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Many have found this acrostic helpful when first beginning to learn the practice of meditating on the Bible. Not in some mechanical fashion, but in reading more reflectively to internalize God's truth. This is something I got when I was in college. The first word is memorize. M for memorize. You know what? We're going to stop right there because I want to illustrate this. And, and uh, this will take 10 minutes. We'll never get to the last page. So we'll pick it up here next week, okay? Uh, we're going to have a time of prayer. It's important, and I want to make sure that the kids are out at a reasonable hour and that you have them by 8 o'clock in your arms. Um.